Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Will mentioned, this is, of course, MLK weekend, where tomorrow is the only federal holiday uh, set aside uh, in honor of a minister of the gospel and his gospel ministry work. Very significant. And so it definitely is appropriate to acknowledge that in the church of all places. And as we return to Acts, I can't think of a more appropriate passage to honor the legacy of Reverend King and the civil rights movement that he led. And I want to introduce the passage by pointing something out, not about King and the civil rights movement, but about the strategy of resistance against his movement. October 5th, 1955, St. James AME Church is burned. December 25th, 1956, Bethel Baptist Church is bombed. April 28, 1957, Allen Temple AME Church is bombed. June 29, 1958, Bethel Baptist Church is bombed again. January 16, 1962, New Bethel Baptist Church, St. Luke's AME Church, Triumph Church, Kingdom of God in Christ, all on the same day firebombed. September 25, 1962, St. Matthew's Baptist Church is burned. December 14, 1962, Bethel Baptist Church bombed for the third time. August 10th, 1963, St. James United Methodist Church burned. September 15th, 1963, 16th Street Baptist Church burned or bombed while meeting, infamously injuring 22 and killing four precious children. June 16th, 1964, Mount Zion Methodist Church burned. And I could go on and on and on. I'm just giving you what happened during King's ministry. Even after the triumph of the civil rights movement, it continued. In fact, in between 1995 and 1996, I was in high school. That's not too long ago. In an 18-month period, in 1995 and 96, 30 black churches were burned, leading Congress to pass the Church Arson Prevention Act, meaning So prevalent was the bombing and burning of black churches that it required its own piece of legislation. So here's my question. Why the church? Why not black restaurants? Why not black bars, black schools, black sporting events? Why black churches? Because the resistance knew what was behind the movement. At the heart of America's civil rights, the fire that fueled the revolution was the black church. 
So they sought to extinguish that fire with their fire. There was and is something about Christianity and the gospel it proclaims that has the resources and power to do the impossible. Reconcile what seems irreconcilable, unite what seems to be be irrevocably divided. And we will see that in our passage this morning. From reviled to reconciled in just 18 verses. It's an amazing passage of scripture. And I'm dividing the text just that way. A people reviled and then a people reconciled. Let's start with... This revilement, verse 1. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So here's the situation. Um, You won't insult me if you say, I can't remember a thing you said in Acts 10. That was too long ago. I get it. It's fine. Let me remind us. The word has spread um, and, and it culminates in chapter 10 of Acts where the gospel via Peter has broken through for the first time into the Gentile world. But rather than celebrating that breakthrough, notice what they're concerned about. Verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, so Jerusalem is the central hub of Christianity at this point. It's been basically a Jewish revolution. The circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? That's meant to be an accusatory tone. You ate with Gentiles? How dare you, Peter? Not just eating with the Gentiles, but eating what the Gentiles ate, which is forbidden? Now, I want us to appreciate that. In verse 1, it says that um, they heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. That is amazing. But what they are fixated and concerned about is a meal that Peter had with Gentiles. Talk about misplaced priorities. But this gets to the level of hatred and um, animosity that existed between Jew and Gentile. I am not going to take the time to explain that divide in detail, the whole Jew-Gentile scripture theme. Um, I'm not going to take the time for that, including why it was so scandalous for Peter to eat with them and certainly to eat Uh, the foods that they ate. The reason why I'm not going to take that time is because I did discuss that in chapter 10 um, in those sermons. So if you want to see that in depth, you can go back and listen to those sermons. But suffice to say for our passage, you must understand that Jews reviled Gentiles. And they did so with a religious, even one might say salvific fervor, meaning to be Jewish, which in their mind meant to be saved, to be acceptable to God, meant or was defined by avoiding Gentiles. Can you imagine a division so deep that you thought your status before God depended upon that very divide? That's what Jews thought about Gentiles. And here's Peter, the lead apostle, fellowshipping with defiled Gentiles and even eating their defiled food. You have to understand that in their thinking, this was essentially apostasy. An unforgivable defilement. What are you doing, Peter? Now, before we get to Peter's explanation, I think it is right 
for us to pause here and see ourselves and see our world in this Jewish revilement. You might think that you can't relate to such deep division, but do not be so arrogant to think that you are above this. Here is my provocative suggestion. Every single sinner in some capacity, in some form, is doing exactly what we see on display in our passage. Every one of us. What was being sought after in the original temptation that plunged us into the fall? To be like God, right? The lie that was told and indulged was that if you take and eat, you shall be like God. Well, what does that mean? It means that we will get to dictate the terms of our existence. We will get to decide what is right and wrong. When we took from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we said, in essence, we want to be the arbiters of what is good and evil. Now, what happens in this new fallen arrangement is that now we become the standard unto ourselves, not God. And socially, meaning among us, what this inevitably does is fracture humanity through a myriad of divisions. How so? Because what it leads to is what um, one of my favorite theologians and scholars, Dr. Carl Ellis, calls creaturism. Dr. Ellis argues that all isms, tribalism, racism, classism, name your ism, all isms are the manifestation of the fundamental flaw of creatureism. Creatureism is when the, when the creature judges creation as if they are the creator. I, a creature, judges the world not according to God's standards and who God is, but according to my standards and who I am. You've heard it said before, I'm sure, that sin separates us from God. And this is true. But what now, what do you, what, what stands in between? If we are separated from God, what stands in between us and God? A mirror. What I see as God is now a reflection of me. That's creaturism. Fundamentally, sin exalts me and those like me as the standard of truth, goodness, and beauty. And when everyone in the planet does that, well, then we have the world as we know it. There's tribalism where when I look at the mirror of what is right and true and good and beautiful, I see the standard of my tribe. There's colonialism where I judge other cultures by the standard of my culture. There's classism where I judge others based upon my societal class. There's nationalism, where I judge others according to the standards of my nation. Perhaps the biggest one threatening us in these days is partisanism, where I judge others based upon the standards of my partisan views. And yes, of course, how can we not confess on MLK Weekend the great historical-ism of our nation? There is racism, where we judge others according to the most easily recognizable difference we humans have, the color of our skin. Do you see? This is what fallen creatures do. We ism each other. The God of the fallen world is a mirror. We, we deify ourselves and those like us 
and we revile those for not being like our recreated image of God, which is an image of me. So don't tell me that you can't relate to verses 2 and 3. You can. So can I. All of humanity is now fractured by countless isms. Now, that's the diagnosis. A diagnosis that I think both historically and certainly presently, it's difficult to argue with that. The question of questions that the entire planet is desperately seeking to find is what, if anything, can be done? Let's spend the majority of our time there. So we've diagnosed the problem. We've seen a people reviled. Now, let's watch a people reconciled. In verses 4 through 14, Peter recounts chapter 10. If you were with us in chapter 10, you remember this. Pretty much in detail, he recounts and tells the exact same story again. And that was important um, for Peter to explain this because, like I already said, what he has done in the Jewish mind is unthinkable. So he really needs to tell them, look, this is how God got me there. This is how God got me to a Gentile table. Um, we're not going to flesh out those verses. Let me just uh, take the time to rehash it again in case um, you weren't with us or, or can't remember. Um, he, here's what happens in verse 4 through 14, but here's what happened in chapter 10. Peter has a vision, and in that vision, God comes, and he makes it very clear that what once was considered unclean now with the coming of the Jewish Messiah, with the coming of Jesus, now all of this is clean. At the same time, there is another vision given to a Gentile named Simon, where God, where God through his angel tells Simon to send for Peter. So immediately when Peter comes out of that vision, messengers of Simon show up, to uh, ask him to come with them to Caesarea and be with Simon and other Gentiles. So Peter now, because of the vision, is prepared to say, okay, I'll go with you. He arrives at Simon's house. It's filled with Gentiles. They say to Peter, we are ready to hear what God has for you to say to us. And Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. Okay, verse 15. As I began to speak... The Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. That beginning is the first Pentecost. What what happened here in in chapter 10 of Acts is essentially a Gentile Pentecost moment where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles in an unmistakable way, just like it was, just like he was in Acts 2. Okay, verse 16. And I remembered what the Lord, what the word, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave, them, gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Let me explain what he's trying to explain to them. Peter had a breakthrough epiphany. He remembered that Jesus promised the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you think baptism of the Spirit, uh, think the mode of baptism that we practice here. I'm not trying to be pejorative with that. I'm really not, but it's important to the meaning. When Jesus promises the, the baptism, the coming of the Holy Spirit, it was the promise of Pentecost when the Spirit would be poured out on the first converts of the new covenant church. That happened unmistakably in Acts 2. But Peter is saying, I saw it happen again. It's happened again. With my own eyes, I witnessed the Spirit poured out in an unmistakable way, but this time to the Gentiles. 
Meaning, the promise Jesus gave was not just to Jewish followers of Jesus, but clearly to Gentile followers of Jesus. So then Peter says, who was I that I should stand in the way of God? Now, what's he talking about there? He means standing in the way of making official what God has clearly done. You see, the Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles, but there is that pivotal, historical, epic-shaping moment where Peter was then faced with this. Clearly, the Gentiles have believed the same gospel. Clearly, the Gentiles have the same Holy Spirit. Am I willing to make this official? Meaning, remember what we have discussed a lot in Acts, that baptism has replaced circumcision as the mark, as the sign of God's people. It was no longer the circumcised, but the baptized that marked the household of God. And so here's what's going on. Peter sees the Gentile Pentecost outpouring of the Spirit, and then he says in Acts 10, 47, Can anyone withhold water? For baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. They have the same Spirit. Is there any reason why we should withhold baptism? The answer, of course, is no. And Peter commands that the Gentiles be baptized, officially inaugurating them into the people of God. And so our passage opens with them asking Peter, why on earth did you go eat with Gentiles? And now Peter is saying, you don't understand. You're not going to believe this. It's not that I was willing to eat with them. It's that them are now us. They are with us now. Meaning, officially. He's saying, brothers and sisters, you don't understand. I baptized them. We no longer have a choice. They are now officially, covenantally marked by baptism and members of God's people. And what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. We're in this with them from henceforth. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Silenced. The revilement has been silenced for what is there left to be said The Gentiles have believed. The Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles have been baptized into the family of God. The wall of hostility has officially fallen, and they are now one in Christ. And so all they have left to do, verse 18, and they glorify God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. My goodness, what a passage of Scripture. Only the gospel, only the gospel could pull this off. And that is not hyperbole. I mean it when I say it. Please, let us not fail to appreciate what brought about such staggering reconciliation. It wasn't a lecture on tolerance. It wasn't a social theory on justice. It wasn't social graces from the South or cultural morality, being nice to each other. It wasn't coexist bumper stickers. Those work real well. 
It wasn't that the Gentiles finally saw things the Jewish way or vice versa. It wasn't legislation that can rightfully and justly prevent us from discriminating against one another and harming one another and force a society that will at least tolerate one another. That's a good thing, no doubt, but never can we legislate reconciliation. And it certainly wasn't religion. We dare not interpret this passage as if religion reconciled. Because the problem on display in the passage is religion and its notorious ability to divide. No, there is one and only one thing on display in our passage that is able to provide such stunning reconciliation. If then God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who am I to stand in God's way? If God has given them the gift of salvation, just as he gave me the gift of salvation, how dare I stand in the way of God uniting us together in that salvation? Only the gospel, friends, only the gospel shatters our isms. And here's why. Remember what I said, that what divides us and God is now the picture, the picture we get of what divides us and God now is a mirror. When we look for God now, we see only a reflection of ourselves and we judge everybody according to that. Well, only the gospel demands that when I look into the mirror, I now see the chief of sinners. I don't see myself as the highest standard that others should live up to. I see the lowest sinner who has failed to live up to God. I'm no longer... Casting judgments based upon my standard, I am now looking into a mirror saying, I am under the judgment of God's standard. Now, that part of the gospel humbles us. And, 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 it, and, it, and it takes away our ability to revile others. We cannot be mean people if we look in the mirror and say, I'm the chief of sinners. But the second half of the gospel is what reconciles. What happens is that Jesus breaks through and shatters that mirror of condemnation and he becomes our new identity. He is the new mirror. What is faith in Jesus? It's when the sinner looks in the mirror and they now see Jesus. And then another sinner looks in the mirror, a sinner with a completely different worldview than me, a completely different culture, skin color, political persuasion, economic class, name your divide, That sinner, with all of the differences, looks in the mirror, and what do they see? The exact same thing I see, Jesus Christ. And therefore, despite any and all differences, we are permanently one in Jesus. Or as Paul says, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ, again, that baptism is both figurative and literal. This is the literal sign of those who belong to Jesus. As many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ... Here there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those were his cultural divides. Jew, Greek, slave, free. What are ours? Here there is no Republican or Democrat, American or immigrant, wealthy or poor, educated elites or working class, southerner, or northerner, or probably better now with the makeup of our country, coastal or flyover. There are no boomers. There are no millennials. There are no mask wearers or mask refusers. 
And yes, there is no white people of color. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here's my brief word of application. I do mean brief. I'm going long at this point. This only works. Our gospel message of reconciliation only reconciles when that gospel and our Jesus truly is our foremost identity. Here's why I say that. This is what's troubling me so deeply with this cultural moment. Evangelicals, that very title, that very title is derived from euangelio, which is the Greek word for gospel. Our very title is euangelists, gospelists. Have lost our way and have begun to define ourselves in countless other ways. When that happens, we can call ourselves gospel people all we want, but we are reconciling nothing, only adding to the division. Let me read for you verses 2 and 3 again and see if you notice something. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Now notice how they are defining their, themselves, their old identity, the identity they're used to, probably their identity they're most proud of, the circumcision party. That's not who they are anymore. They are now Christians. They are now the baptized ones. But they reverted to their old identity. Not Jesus, but the circumcision party. And then the moment they do that, do that notice how they then view the world. In verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So now they are viewing others as not like them and therefore less than them. They reverted. And so they needed Peter's gospel realignment to remind them, to reorient them to Jesus again so that they could glorify God for the Gentile inclusion as the passage ends. And this is what I sense we desperately need in our day. In evangelicalism, but God has not called me to evangelicalism, to TCPC. Now more than ever, we need a gospel realignment. We need to be reminded of our baptism that says my identity is Jesus above all else. There is a reason why they bombed and burned churches during the civil rights era, and it's the same reason that churches were the meeting houses of the civil rights era. Every time before they marched, they churched. Reverend King would gather them in churches where they would sing their gospel songs, pray their gospel prayers, and listen to Martin Luther King stir them again with the gospel message and then out of the church sent forth with the gospel benediction underneath the gospel banner, they poured out of church doors and healed the world. Let's learn from them. Let's do likewise in this hour. Into this divided world of malice and strife, let us cast off those old worldly identities that we are constantly tempted to return to, and the temptation is great with me as well. But let's renounce them. Let's realign and redefine ourselves again by our baptism, by our Jesus. And let's go forth from these doors and heal the world. Let me pray.
Lord Jesus, only you can reconcile what seems impossible. And we are, as you call us, the agents of reconciliation. To us has been entrusted the message of reconciliation. And so let us realign ourselves to Jesus alone and to nothing else. Let us re-identify with Jesus alone and to nothing else. And let us go forth under that identity, under that message, which indeed has and still can heal our world. Thank you for communion, where we come together beneath the identity of Jesus to fellowship with you and each other. And we pray in your name.